Thank you, Cherie. And if you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew 9. We're going to walk through that story this morning and um, see what, uh, what Jesus is up to here. Um, there's something special about little girls. Would you agree with me? I didn't realize this. About 23 years ago, I uh, took my wife to the hospital and it was one of those nerve-wracking times where I'm not very good at meeting new people, and there's going to be this new person in the room any minute, and I have to meet her, or him or her. We didn't know. This, Emma was the only, per, only one of our daughter children that we, uh, we have a son. He's somewhere around here. Um, only one of our children that we didn't do the ultrasound on first and do the gender reveal thing. You know, we didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. We wanted to surprise ourselves. We, we were done with the surprise after one, and all, the other ones we, we, we got to know ahead of time. But she, so she was the only one we didn't know, and then lo and behold, we have this little girl born into the world, born into our family, and I didn't realize how much I love little girls until I had one of my own. And then the Lord blessed me with three more. So there is something special about little girls. And as a daddy of four girls, I know something about loving girls and having a deep, almost guttural desire to protect them and to want their best. And this story is actually two stories wrapped up into one. It's like a little story sandwich where there's a story, a big story on the outside, and then right in the middle, we have another story. But both the stories are stories of daughters. You see in verse 18, the ruler says, my daughter has died. And then in verse uh, 22, this woman comes up to Jesus and touches his, his garment, and then he says, take heart, daughter. Both these characters are called daughters very specifically in this story. This is a story that shows us, if nothing else, it gives us a picture of what God thinks about his daughters, about his love, his deep love for his girls. And the sad thing is that in Jewish societies and in many societies in the history of the world, women have not been the equals of men in any way, shape, or form. They're often treated with contempt. They're often simply valued for uh, their sexual or reproductive capabilities. But if you haven't noticed, Jesus rarely takes on the, the aura or the beliefs or the practices of the culture. He always pushes back. He always challenges. He challenges his own culture. He challenges our culture. He doesn't follow our lead. He calls us to treat every person with dignity, with respect, with love, regardless of class, cleanliness, regardless of social status, sex, or gender. God loves his little girls. And half the room, you are his little girls. You gotta, I, want, I want you all to hear that today, ladies. God loves his daughters. And the first story, um, really, again, I, both these stories are wrapped into one. And I was going to preach on both of them this morning and then realize this morning, I can't do it. I can't fit all this into one sermon. So we're going to look at these stories separately over the next couple weeks. And then at the end of next week, I'll wrap them together and kind of give an idea of how they fit together. An overarching thing that we're going to see these two weeks is that Jesus thinks of salvation as being wrapped in resurrection. And he conveys that to us in how he treats these two daughters. And the first daughter in this story, the first story we'll look at today, 
is, is a vulnerable and weak girl due to the fact, first of all, that she's a child. She's, from the other Gospels, we know she's 12 years old, and she's under her parents' attentive care. And even so, even though her parents were caring for her and loving her and seeking to keep her alive, she still gave in to the deepest human vulnerability. She still succumbed to death no matter what they did. So in that way, she, she really represents all of us, humans, mortals, and vulnerable to death. And there's really no way that we can avoid it. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't rescue those that we love from the inevitability of death. But this isn't just any death, is it? It's the death of a child. It's a death outside of its proper time. This is not a a 90-year-old woman who's lived a full life and is ready to, to, to face death and go and be with her maker. This is a child who's died out of time, out of her proper time. This is a life cut short. This is a, a disruption of God's created and good life. This is not the way it's supposed to be. 12-year-old girls are not supposed to die before their parents. The death of a child smacks us in the face with how wrong and unnatural death actually is. And like most any parent, this father tries anything and everything to rescue his daughter from this untimely end. If you look at verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, while Jesus was saying these things to a group of people, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him along with his disciples. Now, this ruler, we know from from the books of Mark and Luke that his name is Jairus, but Matthew purposely omits that fact. This ruler comes to Jesus in the middle of a feast. We've already spent a couple of weeks at this feast. Yes, it's a really long feast. We've spent a couple of weeks at this feast as Jesus calls Matthew to follow him and then goes and eats at the tax collector's house. Right, the outsider, the despised one's house, and he goes and reclines at table and spends time with sinners and tax collectors. And then this group of disciples from John come to him and ask, if, ask him about some religious practices like fasting. And he's quite literally, it says, in mid-sentence, explaining, telling them what he thinks about their question. And in mid-sentence, as he explains to them the flavor of God's kingdom... That God's kingdom is flavored by joy, not grief. In comes this ruler. So have that picture in your mind that Jesus is is giving. He's talking about garments and patches and wineskins and wine. This newness of the kingdom. this, This joy of having the bridegroom. And he said that his presence is more like a wedding than a funeral. So think about it. Here comes now a man from the side of his daughter's deathbed right into this conversation. And Jesus says, when I'm around, it's more like a wedding than a funeral. We're not having any funerals in my presence. And what does he do? He gets up and he goes. The connection between what he's just finished saying and his his immediate interaction with this ruler is very important. There's a joy 
that the presence of Jesus brings about that he is about to put on full display in the ultimate kingdom reality, the ultimate foundation of joy, which is resurrection, life from the dead. So Jesus is talking about garments, patches, wines, wineskins. Remember, he's talking about the joy of the kingdom not being able to be contained by these religious self-righteousness, these outworn modes of religion. This ruler bursts in the house. You can imagine there's a crowd going like, what's this guy doing here? The pastor showed up, right? He spots Jesus. He rushes to him, maybe pushing people out of his way. And then he falls down on his knees before Jesus. The word used here for kneeling, same word used back in chapter 8, verse 2, when the, when, the, when the leper, the man with the skin disease, comes and falls and kneels before Jesus. It's the New Testament's favorite word for worship, what this word means is is to worship, to kneel down before someone who is more worthy and mightier than you. And as as a ruler, this man would have been well respected, likely would have been powerful, would have been a member of the religious establishment. Like I said, he was probably the the ruler of the synagogue, so he would have been like the pastor of the town. So for him to come to Jesus exuding both desperation and faith in Jesus' power to do the impossible is an incredible display of humility and of faith, and perhaps of worship. He's recognized that in this moment of desperation, Jesus is the only one who's able to do something for him that he could never do. And that's rescue his daughter from the clutches of death. This is what we call faith. And it's the same faith that's already been displayed by two other men in these couple of chapters. So that man again, the the leper, the man with the skin disease, chapter 8, verse 2, he came to Jesus, bowed before him and said, if you will, then you can make me clean. Then a few verses later, we meet this Roman officer, the centurion, who in chapter 8, verse 8, says to Jesus, if you simply just say the word, then my servant will be healed. And now we have the ruler saying something very similar here in verse 18. If you lay your hand on her, if you just touch her, then she will live. See, the same pattern of speech coming out of the woman's mouth in verse 21 here in just a few verses where she says, if I only touch his garment, then I will be made well. There's this faith that that trusts in Jesus' ability, that Jesus can, and that is really what the nature of faith is, believing that Jesus can. That's faith. That's the faith that's required of all of us, acknowledging that I can't, only Jesus can. And in this instance, we're not talking about skin diseases. We're not talking about illnesses or fevers. We're we're talking about the ultimate claim of what Jesus can do, raise someone from the dead. And here's this man saying, if you touch her, she will be raised from the dead. I mean, that's crazy, amazing faith. And the funny thing about this story is that Jesus never even talks to this guy. Doesn't say a word to him. Doesn't talk about his faith like he commends the faith of the woman there in verse 22, I think. So Jesus is immediately compelled, though, to get up and follow the man. Without question, without conversation, without any delay. And this is is interesting to me. I'm a a word geek. 
This is the only time in the entire Bible where Jesus is said to follow someone, which I, I think that's important. I looked up every instance of this word, the Greek word in the Gospels, and it normally refers to people following Jesus or people being called to follow Jesus. And that, so that fact makes, me, makes this a highly unusual event that there's something about this man, there's something about this moment, there's something about this little girl that compels Jesus to do something he's never done, which is to follow someone else. So if you'll humor me for a moment, here's what I think might be happening. I think this girl actually might be a representative of all God's daughters, and in particular, his first daughter, Eve. So if you remember the story of Eden, the story of the garden where God originally placed Adam in a garden, formed him out of the dust of the earth, breathed life into him, and then gave him the task of protecting the kingdom, really, on earth. And Adam is given the privilege of naming all the animals, but but in all the animals, in all of God's created uh, world of animals, he's not able to find a helper suitable to him. So God does what God does to men when they can't figure it out. He puts them to sleep. Opens up his side, pulls out a rib, forms the rib into a woman, closes up the side again, wakes Adam up, and brings her, this first daughter, Eve, to the man and gives her to Adam as a wife, as a helper, as a maid, as a companion. And Adam looks at her and says, whoa. His eyes just bulge. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And together, Adam and Eve become one and are given as the image of God, male and female, to rule and represent God's kingdom on the earth. But we love Genesis chapter 2, we hate Genesis chapter 3, but Genesis 3 comes, and evil comes into the garden in the form of a serpent. And instead of challenging Adam, the head, the authority, the one who's supposed to protect and oversee, evil comes to Eve and tempts her to take and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that in his generosity, God said, do not touch or taste of that one, but every other tree you can enjoy. And unprotected, yet accompanied by Adam, she ate and gave him some to eat of the fruit. And the rest is history. The rest is sin and rebellion that's entered into the human race. And with it, with that sin and rebellion, our great enemy, death. So God's daughter, who was unprotected and deceived, becomes the vehicle by which death untimely and unnaturally enters the world. And as a part of the curse, there rises up an enmity between the man and the woman. God says to the man, your desire will be for your husband. In other words, you will want to be the boss. You will want to control. You will want to be against him, yet he will rule over you. And that rule will not always be a benevolent rule. In fact, the history of humanity shows that that rule of man over woman is filled with violence, it's filled with abuse, it's filled with condemnation, it's filled with enmity, and it's filled with murder. So that the created and good relationship of authority and submission will be fraught with tension, with enmity, and with violence. And so Eve's spiritual death in Genesis 3 was the first of millions of untimely deaths that have come upon God's daughters. And Jesus' immediate response to hearing about this little one 
perhaps reminds him of his first daughter. And he gets up and he follows this bereaved father, a representative of perhaps God as the bereaved father. And he displays his mission to come and to reverse this curse through his own death and resurrection. A death and resurrection that's actually anticipated in Genesis 3 in that ancient story when God speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so God was foretelling of a day when an offspring of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head, would come and crush Satan and yet be wounded and die in the midst of it. And that very Savior, that very Messiah, that very offspring has come now and he gets up from the table and he goes to rescue his daughter. Jesus is the promised offspring, the serpent crusher, and he has come to finally put an end to the works of the devil, including death. And at very least, Jesus' quickness in following this ruler shows his compassion, even a, even a depth of knowledge that he knows what this man's going through. He knows what it's like to lose daughters, to watch his precious girls neglected and used and abused and abandoned and left unprotected and suffer untimely deaths. God has sent his perfect son on a rescue mission, not just for sons, but for daughters as well. And perhaps by getting up and following this ruler, we can see that the son of God is following his father, the ultimate ruler, on a rescue mission in pursuit of his daughters. But that's just a guess of what's going on here. Let's skip ahead, though, and see how this story ends. Pick it up in verse 23. Story gets interrupted. We'll get to that next week. In verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. The girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. You wonder why there's a bunch of flautists at the house. And flute players and mourners were actually paid professionals. So if they showed up at the house, they're getting paid to do it. And they're coming, and they're kind of leading the funeral arrangements. They're leading the mourning. Okay? They're, they're helping people mourn correctly. They would actually be hired by a family uh, when a loved one had died um, to come and do that. It would be like the moment, if you've had someone pass away in the home, and it's that moment when the, when the funeral home shows up at the doorway. And there's a man there coming to collect the body. It accentuates, if nothing else, the fact and the gravity of the moment that death has actually occurred. So the presence of these professional mourners just solidify the fact that this daughter was truly dead. So when Jesus says she's just sleeping, of, of course they're going to laugh, but Jesus always sees things differently, doesn't he? Remember, he's, he's just finished saying that there's no room for mourning when the bridegroom is present. There's no place for funerals at a wedding. Jesus' presence is more like a feast than a funeral. It's more like a time of celebration than a time of mourning. When Jesus is around, death is not the last word. 
And in the end, Jesus redefines death. When we see death as final. We see it as the last thing. Jesus knows that it's merely transitory. It has a beginning and it has an end, just like sleep. She's just sleeping. It started and it's going to end. The mourners, though, they don't understand that perspective because death is their jam, their moneymaker. Right? This is what they do for a living. They know death. It's their, it's their norm. It's their livelihood. To them, for Jesus to act as if a deceased girl is, is merely sleeping is, is comical. So it's, it's a naive denial of, of the obvious, of the inevitable, of what's right in front of us. Who are you, Jesus, to say that death isn't the last word? So they ridicule him. And for us, honestly, we're, we're people who live in a world that is unbelieving it's materialist, naturalistic. We live in a secular culture, and we have to realize that the world will always mock hope. The world will always mock hope. When, when God is removed from, from a worldview, when, when God is moved from a picture of reality, and this is a removal that has taken place in our culture over the last couple hundred years. When God is removed from the picture all that we're left with is death. What's left is a purposeless and impersonal universe made up of only matter and energy in which life is just an accident. Life doesn't have any meaning at all. Death is the only reality. Because removing God from the picture will always result in a culture of death, which is the, cult, the shape of the culture in which we live. If God is dead and the world is without meaning, then evils like abortion or sex trafficking or pornography, all, all of those, by the way, which are capstone evils on a culture of death, are all dehumanizing and devaluing of God's daughters. When these kind of evils all become the norm, we live in a culture of death. That's what happens when you take God out of the picture, but Jesus stands against this culture of death by the power of an indestructible life. And he does so, I love this, he does so by throwing out the harbingers of death. He comes right in the first words he says, these are the only people he speaks to in this story, by the way, go away. It's not just like, hey, will you guys please leave? It's like, go away. It's, a, it's an order, it's a command. He tells them, go away. And then it says, I think in the, what does it say here in the ESVA? When the crowd had been put outside, the word there is actually, when they, the same word that gets used when Jesus casts out demons, they got cast out of the house. They were thrown out of the house. He has them cast out of the house, and he doesn't do this because they're loud and distracting. He doesn't do it because he wants some privacy. He threw them out because death is not the last word. And then tenderly, compassionately, he proves the point. And he takes the little girl's hand like he'd taken the hand of Peter's mother-in-law in chapter 8. And the girl, it says, arose. An untimely death is reversed and Jesus' life emerges victorious. But this is really just a picture. It's a representation of the, the great reality that God has come to Jesus has come to reverse the curse, to put all things to right. He has come because he loves his daughters and his sons. And he's come to, to, 
to reverse, excuse me, I lost my spot here. Okay, he's come because he loves his daughters and every untimely death and every abuse and every neglect and subjugation and injustice will be made right by King Jesus. You know, the, the sad part about all this as I think about God's love for his daughters is that the church today is actually seen as an institution that, that almost survives on taking dignity away from women. And the church has certainly been found guilty in this respect in relation to abusive treatment of women. However, Jesus wants us, the church, to love and care for his daughters, and he constantly reminds us in his scripture of the dignity and the status of his little girls. You know, the pro-life movement won a major victory just over a week ago with the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, sadly, this victory for life is seen by a culture of death as an attack on women, which is a little bit upside down. And in response, we can fight and yell all we want, but in response, honestly, our task as the church is to uphold and protect and advocate for all vulnerable people, not just the unborn, but their mothers, especially single mothers, Mothers in poverty, abandoned children, orphans, foster children, people caught in sex trafficking. To be pro-life and to be pro-God's daughters means that we as the church care for and advocate for all women all of the time, which is actually good feminism, by the way. This includes affirming God-created and God-given sex and gender distinctions, while at the same time welcoming and befriending and loving those whose expressions and understandings of gender and sexuality don't line up with ours. Embracing them and loving them and caring for them, treating them with dignity and respect and extending to them both grace and truth. Jesus' resurrection power doesn't just apply to his daughters, though. It does apply to all of his daughters and sons who've, who've placed their faith in him. And so outside of the tomb of his friend in John chapter 11, Jesus speaks with Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I give resurrection and life, but I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? It's a question for all of us today. Like this ruler, like this father, do we believe that Jesus has the power to conquer death? 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' victory over death is also a victory, not just over death in the future, but over the fear of death now. Something that constantly restrains us in, our, in this world. It restrains us in obedience at times. But the author of the Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, who by faith believe in Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That, that serpent, that evil one of old who came and deceived the woman, Eve, the daughter 
He now has come, Jesus has come to destroy that one, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, we no longer have to be afraid of death. The hard thing to grasp, but let's believe it because we have a living Savior. The knowledge of death often dictates our beliefs, our actions, whether it's conscious or unconscious. But because of Jesus, death is like sleep in the sense that it's ephemeral. It has a beginning. It has an end. It's not the ultimate reality. It's an unnatural aberration. It's an, it's an uninvited guest to God's created world. And it's something that also will, in time, be done away with by the power of Jesus' indestructible life. I invite you to come to the table and to celebrate that when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He was raised again. We can can look at the cross all we want. We can look at Jesus' death on our behalf all we want, and that's great. But if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, what does Paul say? We're all fools. There's no power to this meal unless the resurrection has taken place. So as you come, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and partake of the Lord's table. Remember his his death, his burial, and his resurrection as we look forward to him coming again. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we do come again before you and we proclaim the power of the life of our Savior who is the resurrection and the life, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, the one over whom death holds no sway and who now even lives standing at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for his people, for us, for his sons and for his daughters. Jesus, I love this story because it shows how much you love your little girls. I love my little girls, but not even an inkling compared to how you love them. So Jesus, would you make us, would you transform us, would you shape us into a church that loves all with the dignity and respect and love and embrace and hospitality and grace that they deserve because they're made in your image. So Jesus, would you be honored in our worship? Would you be honored in our obedience? Would you be honored in our joy this morning? And would you be honored as we take of the supper and remember your death and your resurrection on our behalf? as we stand even now with you in Christ, resurrected for all of eternity. We pray these things. We don't understand them. <laughs> we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to the, to the reality that is resurrection. In your name we pray, amen.